Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. Entering El Labyrintho del Fauno. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Oh, sorry. You. you, you. <laughs> God, that was rude. That was so how, rude of how me. How dare you, sir? Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Horror Vanguard. I am one of your co-ghosts. I am Ash, joined, as always, by the one, the only, the... John! Oh, wait, no! <laughs> uh, hey, it's John, otherwise known as Liquid Guy. Very excited to be here talking about this film in particular. Yes, this is it's been it's been a long time coming that we uh covered this director's particular uh filmography. I think it's uh it's been long overdue. But before before we break the seal uh in into Guillermo del Toro's uh cinematic perfection, we have a special message from our sponsors. This program is made possible by contributions from listeners like you. Go to patreon.com slash horrorvanguard and get access to bonus episodes and other exclusive content. Thank you for listening and stay spooky. It's not wolves. It's wolf. 20,000 years. Ten times you're fucking Christian era. And we're back. From that particular special message right into another even more special message. Because, John, I know that you've been working on something incredibly special that you want to share with everyone out there in TV land. <laughs> uh, indeed. As, as people may know, part of my day job is I am an academic who works on horror. Um, I am currently part of a project that is looking at how horror shapes and informs people's uh, religious or spiritual understandings of the world. Uh, to do that, we need to gather as much information as possible about how horror fans think about the cultural form that we all love and enjoy. So to that end, we have designed a really short survey. Um, the link to it is going to be in the show notes to this episode. We're trying to get as many responses as possible to give us the biggest pool of data that we can draw from. So if you would like uh, to help shape the academic discussion about horror. If you have five minutes, it should take five minutes, no more to spare. Please do check out uh, the survey at the link in the show notes. Uh, in the show notes, you will also find a short film that we made to talk about what the project is and why we're doing it. Uh, it is also five minutes long, so please do check that out as well. It's a really interesting question about how horror uh, influences people to think about non-material existence as it were uh so if you uh enjoy the show please uh i would very much appreciate it if you could uh take just 10 15 minutes out of your day watch watch the video that we've linked to and fill in the survey both of those links will be in the show notes yeah the video the video is phenomenal incredibly well put together a, a little cinematic masterpiece starring dr at the licorice guy himself 
I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. And the, the survey is very engaging and I'm really excited to see where this project goes. So definitely please check it out. Fantastic. Thank you so much to everyone. I know some people, uh, particularly uh, HV patrons have already done it. It's much appreciated. So uh, please do, if you can, take a few minutes to fill that out for me. Well, with that out of the way, with that out of the way, it is time to talk about Guillermo del Toro's El Labyrinto del Forno. Um, and for those who have not seen this film, uh, Ash, would you mind explaining what it's all about? Guillermo del Toro has been responsible for some of my all-time favorite movies, The Devil's Backbone, Kronos, and of course, El Labyrinto del Forno. He was also the producer on Enrique Meza's Eotzinapa El Paso de la Tortuga, a very impactful and weighty political film. Instead of writing a precy today, I'm going to follow in the footsteps of Cornelia Funke, who wrote the novel adaptation of El Labyrinto del Fano. It's not for me to remake this film into... It's not for me to remake this film into a precy, but to transmute it into the brevity of a question. Where is your labyrinth, and what lies in its depths? Join us as we discuss Guillermo del Toro's El Labyrinto del Fano. An intriguing question with which to start, um, and a question I really like. So I think what we want to do right at the beginning is to do something that we've done um, quite a lot recently, which is just take a few minutes to talk about the formal and structural elements of the film formalism is back uh it's good again um we're gonna do some formalist criticism where would formalism, you like to stop formalism is sexy formalism is cool uh formalism uh tell tell your friends about it it's the hip new thing it's the it's the, it's, the, it's the new the new trend sweeping the nation get ready gen z get out your tiktok machines it's time for formalism <laughs> Um, so I think I, I think uh, to deviate a little bit from my notes here, the first formalist for talking point I want to bring up is the uh, the fact that we keep referring to this film as El Labyrintho del Fano and not Pan's Labyrinth, mm-hmm. and it's it has less to do with us being pretentious movie critics and more to do with the fact that. Pan is not in the movie. <laughs> yeah, pa- the, Pan is not a character in this film. Yes, uh, uh, Pan is not in the movie. This is also not Pan's Labyrinth. The, that title is deeply incorrect. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sort of curious about this because it's such a deliberate choice that when the film was getting a, a, an international release, um, it's... It, it has a translated title to make it more marketable. And this is the choice that they made. Um, and I think it, it, and I think this also links to the way that the tra- the international trailer was released, the American and mm-hmm. um, Anglophone trailers were released because they, they make it, you know, apparently when it first came out, it was, it was market marketed as like, Oh, it's, it's a fairy story. Yes bring your kids don't take don't don't take your kids to see this film 
I actually actually do think that this is like a really good movie for children, but I think that that's a that's like a, a divergent conversation we can get into in a little bit when we start talking about the effects. Um, yes, absolutely. But yeah, you, you so you have to translate your title when when you're switching languages for different audiences, right? Mm-hmm. Like Guillermo del Toro is Spanish speaking, uh, so a lot of the work that he puts out is initially framed from his like Mexican background and like the Spanish language. Uh, but the choice of making this Pan's Labyrinth is just, like, horrible. So uh, in, an, in an interview uh, with Cornelia Funke, Guillermo del Toro was talking about how kind of uh, Anglophone audiences, especially Hollywood, treats the fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm going to paraphrase the, the anecdote he has here, but it's, uh, the fairy tale is the princess who lives on top of a glass mountain. And every day, uh, brave knights attempt to climb the mountain to be with her, but their horses just slide down the glass. Uh, the, the American fairy tale is, why is she there? Why do the knights try this? Why is the glass mountain not a diamond mountain? You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's all, all about picking apart all of these pieces. And, you know, like, this is a, an interesting movie because the direct translation would work perfect. You know, yeah, ab- a- absolutely. The labyrinth of the fawn, or the fawn's labyrinth, if you wanted to do it that way, like that, that works great. We know we have we have the word fawn in English. We have the word labyrinth. Like we're set, and they mean the same things. Like, but I think I think yep. it, it reflects it reflects that impulse to explain everything and to have no mystery. Right, this can't be a labyrinth of, of a fawn. Right, this has to be Pan's labyrinth. This has to be the marketable fawn with the brand name. And I think this ties back into the fact that, as you said, people don't necessarily get what fairy tales are for. Mm-hmm. Um, fairy tales generally, like parables generally, are didactic. So there is, and, and people, people get very kind of like skittish when we talk about didacticism. The idea that, the idea that a film or a piece of art or a, uh, a piece of literature might have something to teach you yeah. uh, is, is seen as kind of problematic. And you know, I, I I kind of get that, but this this is absolutely trying to make points about something, and didacticism depends upon this idea that there are things that the audience does not know, and you have to be told, and so certain things about the world have to be taken as givens. You know, uh, you don't listen to uh, the story of Red Riding Hood with an expectation that you're going to find out a lot about the. <laughs> you know the, the the behavior the behavioral psychology of wolves, right? That's not what you listen to the story for. And I think mm-hmm. it's a super important point, right? That there is this divergence between a mode of storytelling that allows for uh, the positionality of the viewer or audience or reader to be one who does not know and who gets to experience something new, versus the way that a lot of kind of films set themselves up, a lot of quote unquote good films set themselves up as presenting a world which is completely transparent and explained and uh, sensible can be grasped in the senses by the audience. And I'm not saying that one is better or worse, but I'm saying like, if you refuse to accept that there are certain things about a world or experience that's presented to you that you maybe won't understand, you're not going to appreciate it in the, in the depth and detail that you could. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. Um, I think part of this is something that I know that Guillermo del Toro uh, talks about a lot in interviews and in that like the contemporary cinematic audience is incredibly jaded 
You know, we, we see all media as totally transparent. We think we're beyond yeah. marketability and manipulation. We, we, we think that we can grasp the wholeness and truth of the world. And that's really like, that's the most hubristic thing we do as an audience, right? We, we are so wrong about that. And like, I'm, I'm also moved now to think about uh, uh, Labor Kyle's recent comments on Call of Duty. You know, we're like mm-hmm. the, the whole game is like, oh, you're a special little boy. Here's your treats and candies. You're the best. You're so smart and clever. And like a lot of modern cinema is treating the audience like a like an infant and, mm-hmm. and it's dangling car keys in front of us. And it's like, oh, who's such a good boy? Like, I'm not a cat. <laughs> and I, I, I appreciate Guillermo del Toro not treating me that way. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I think it's a distinction between, uh, you know, being neither a kind of pandering infantilism or a kind of cynical, jaded adulthood as the as the presupposed viewer. Um, it's a fairy story, and who are fairy stories for? Fairy stories are for children, and and I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. This is a fairy story, and I I actually think you were right that you know in a in a way this is an excellent film for children because generally. That, that cynicism of expecting everything to be explained to you is a learned process mm-hmm. that, is acquired, that is acquired, that's a, a cultured on people as we, as we kind of move through the cultural spaces of late capitalist modernity. And so I want to get into that more when we talk about the, about the ending in particular. Um, I think there's something incredibly valuable about a filmmaker who insists upon the essential mystery and contingency of certain aspects of existence, the fact that there might be magical creatures in the woods does not reduce the woods. It just encourages <laughs> it just encourages you to look at them in a brand new way. I I, I couldn't agree more. Right? Like like and I, and I think this is something this is something that uh kind of follows and haunts Guillermo del Toro's work, right? Like it, Crimson Peak is I think the best mm-hmm. example of this, right? Crimson Peak is a phenomenal movie, incredibly well put together, incredibly well acted. The effects are stunning. It is, like all of Guillermo del Toro's work, incredibly well crafted. Uh, mm. But it's also one of his bigger flops, and that's entirely on the fact that nobody knew how to market that thing because the idea of a gothic romance is a bit lost to contemporary audiences, and it's entirely lost to contemporary marketing efforts. Right. Mm-hmm. So a, a lot of the marketing tried to spin it as a straight romance, which isn't going to work because you've got ghouls running about the place and they try to market it as a horror movie. And that's not going to work because it's just a romance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, absolutely. you know, we're, we're seeing the, the same the same thing here happen with um, El Labyrintho del Falmo. Yeah, uh, I, it, it requires you to simply approach it on its own terms. Mm hmm rather than expect it to fit into the uh this is i all right this is something frederick jameson says about teaching literature to 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 first year undergraduate students so fred jameson may be the most famous marxist literary critic in the world and jameson says that you never approach a text purely as if for the first time when you read mm-hmm. or you experience something you're bringing to bear on it your own ideological lenses. And so the task of teaching is to get students not to kind of read the text, but to recognize how they're reading yes. and why and why. Absolutely. 
So that actually maybe what you can do next is begin to experience this thing in a, in a new way. Not, the, not for the first time, not in a fresh way, but in a new way. And, and really, that's, I, there's something analogous happening here, right? It forces you to recognize the, the cynicism and the preconceived and pre-received ideas about what a fantasy-inflected uh, horror film should be when you come across something that is so distinctive as this. Yeah, and the, like, this is a fairy tale. And yeah, the modality of storytelling that a fairy tale is predates capitalism. You know, we're, we're, we're dealing with something here that occurs fundamentally before a lot of marketing efforts and all of this stuff. So, like, and Guillermo del Toro is deeply embracing that tradition. So that mm -hmm. makes this a, a difficult film to wrestle with because it is a horror movie aimed at adults that deals with historical and very high-minded themes. It's also a kid's movie uh, that's, that's about a little girl becoming a princess. And importantly... It's about both of those things, and those yes. things are not in contradiction with one another. No, and this not is at one all. of the, well, and this is one of the. <laughs> this isn't spookies. <laughs> no, yeah, precisely. But this is one of the really important formalist elements about how this film is put together, which is in the editing, because essentially mm -hmm. you you have uh, two perspectives on one narrative, arguably, right? You have Ophelia's perspective on what's happening, which involves a magical fawn and three quests. And the rejection of this new, um, uh, quote unquote, father figure, uh, and you have what we we could take like uh, Mercedes as yep. as the other kind of adult point of view, which is an anti-fascist resistance to the Francoist government. But those things are not contradictory. No, the no. The editing in this film is so good because in in moving between those two point of views you are never left with the impression that they're happening in two separate worlds. And it's done through, usually through just pans and wipes. So we'll do transitions through a piece of physical scenery, like, um, you know, an army, uh, an army truck going through a forest and we'll pan past trees and you'll see fairies. So everything here happens in one integrated world. And it would be in, in the hands of a lesser filmmaker and a lesser editor. These would, these would be stories that would be happening parallel to one another but because of how this film builds its world they're happening in the same shared space yes ab absolutely and and this is so integral to the design of this film right like ophelia and mercedes are mirror characters you know they're going through the same experience but they're going through it from from in, in opposing worlds if you will you know, that that finally converge at the climax of this film, which we will get to uh, because I think the, the, this whole movie is interesting and powerful. But the ending is is just uh, the the absolute unbearable joy of jouissance right there at the end. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it, I, it's a, it's an honestly it's a genuinely beautiful ending. So um, before before we get into uh uh, having having a little fun and doing what we do, uh, we do have to uh, celebrate the man, the myth, the legend, Doug Jones. Let's talk about Doug Jones. What what an absolute legend! Yeah, I really so the the acting of the fawn, uh, as well as the pale man, was was done by like legendary uh, character actor Doug Jones. Um, I, I think was Doug, I think Doug Doug Jones 
the first big role Doug Jones landed uh, was as oh the zombie from Hocus Pocus. I am absolutely forgetting his name right now, but that's the uh, I think that was the first big role. And then since then, like whenever whenever Guillermo del Toro needs somebody in a monster costume, he just kind of taps Doug Jones's shoulder. <laughs> and why wouldn't you? I mean, my God, it's the the work the work that Doug Doug Jones put into this is just really impressive. Could couldn't speak mm-hmm. Spanish. Uh, when when they started production, uh, had to film all of his stuff completely blindfolded because you can't see out of either of those two costumes. Uh, uh, had to like do a lot of like weird stuff, like walking backwards and running, and like just incredibly interesting all around. Mm-hmm. And you know he he's like Doug Jones spends hours in makeup. Uh, the the makeup for the fawn is it phenomenally heavy couldn't couldn't see except by looking out of the fawn's nostrils <laughs> um and also i think I, I i this is where i genuinely sort of have to take my cat hat off to him doug jones does not speak spanish he's not multilingual <laughs> which is just which is just phenomenal so he learned uh the script uh he also learned um ivana banquero who plays ophelia's lines because otherwise he wouldn't know where he was supposed to say his bit. <laughs> and he's doing this on a set where, aside from Guillermo del Toro, pretty much nobody else speaks all that much English. Um, and it's it's honestly just incredible he's able to do this. Yeah, so I really like... We, 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 we don't talk enough about, like, actors on, on this show, and we really should, but, like, as far as formalist elements goes, like... Like uh, uh, Doug Doug Jones is the glue that's holding this movie together because if that fawn didn't work, the entire movie falls apart. Yeah, completely, completely. Uh, I mean, it, he 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 dubs Doug Jones later um, with um, uh, Pablo Adan, who's a kind of incredibly well-known uh, theater actor with a very authoritative voice, um, but. If you hadn't got the words right, the dubbing would also look ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the phone has this. What 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 is it that Del Toro says that um, he was supposed to go very rock star with the phone, and you can kind of see it, right? Mm-hmm. He's got this uh, very uh, forms an incredible contrast with Ophelia. There is a. Uh, not necessarily a threat, but you never feel particularly like she's safe around the fawn, even though it's not yeah. malevolent. It's not malevolence. It's not kind of danger, but it's just the kind of uh, power that's there. And so much of it is communicated through movement and gesture and voice. Uh, we we are Doug Jones stands on this show. <laughs> yeah, I think like the the character of the fawn is incredibly interesting, right? Because it's it's very intentionally older than time itself. Yeah. You know, it's it's this being that represents immense power and change, which even if it's benevolent is still deeply threatening to the human mm-hmm. scale. Yes, absolutely. So, are you are you ready are you ready to get into the fun zone? Let us do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, where do you want to start? Um, well, I, if it's not clear by now, we both really like this movie. Uh, I, I honestly think, I honestly think it's, 
It's it's my favorite Del Toro film. I don't know whether it's his best one, but it's it's my favorite one of his. Um, I've I've seen it more times than I can remember, and and I remember very clearly seeing it for the first time, and it making a phenomenal impression upon me. Um, I think it's uh, I, I I I've I said before we started recording that. You know, sometimes we talk about films where we have very different opinions and it's not often that we have uh, films on HV where we have pretty much kind of a universally positive point of view on it. <laughs> yeah, uh, like and really, I'm, assuming, I'm assuming you're with me on this, right? <laughs> yeah, I have, I have literally nothing bad to say about this movie. There's nothing where I'm like, eh, well, you know, that could have been this, that, or the other. There's really like nothing nothing on this i find find myself saying that a lot with uh guillermo del toro's movies where it's just like okay (laughs) so we're 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 dealing with someone who's like clearly one of the greatest filmmakers that have ever worked in the art so hard hard to like uh start knocking points off around the corners Mm -hmm. yeah um i know you wanted to talk about the mode of storytelling though right how how this film successfully kind of communicates its story to the viewer well this this is something i think we we touched on really briefly when we were talking about the fact that this is a fairy tale you mm-hmm. know it's it's this older kind of storytelling right and like uh Guillermo del Toro talks about this in terms of like resisting aristotelian storytelling so these like these this very direct, very scientific way of of telling a contemporary story that's incredibly structured, you know, and and it's it's kind of uh, the the audience is is stuck in this well worn groove, right? Like we know when a movie is supposed to change things up, we know what's going to happen, right? You know, like we can we can predict the jump scare. You know, like we, we know, we know what's going to happen. We know, okay, the music's dropping out because the sting is about to hit because someone's going to jump, right? Like there's, there, there's a lot of uh, white space over the character's shoulder and there happens to be a doorway there. So something's going to pop out, right? Like, like those, those things have kind of dulled our cinematic senses. And like what I find really interesting about, you know, um, uh, El Labyrintho del Fano is that like, um, Sorry, it's lost my train of thought. What I find really interesting about El Labyrintho del Fano is that it's, it's still playing inside of the the sandbox or cinematic convention, but it's using this older type of storytelling to to break us out of a lot of our expectations. Yes, yeah, I would I would completely agree. Um, or even or even sort of like a remembrance of of older ways of telling stories, right? You know, it's. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's full of these references to kind of old pre-cinema narratives, um, and it kind of serves as a reminder that even if you transpose those narratives into a new form, they still have a great deal of power. Absolutely. So, do you want to talk about fascism? I think we should talk about <laughs> fascism. I don't particularly want to talk about fascism, but we need to talk about fascism. Um, and and to do that, we should absolutely talk about uh, Sergei Lopez, Capitan Vidal, um, who is just an absolutely heinous character. 
Um, yes. One thing. Oh. One thing that. Sorry, go on. Oh, I was going to say really, really quickly. Uh, this movie takes place in fascist Spain, uh, uh, right on the tail of 1944. And if you uh, would care to give our listeners a, a brief uh, uh, historical overview of what that means, because I think the the temporal setting of this movie is is an important character in and of its own right. Uh, so. We are in uh, Francoist Spain. General Franco has uh, uh, taken command of uh, the government, uh, Francisco Franco. So between uh, 19, uh, I think it's 1936 to 1975 mm-hmm. uh, is, uh, is the Francoist dictatorship. It uh, was, this period was preceded by a fairly brutal civil war um, between uh, the the Reds and the fascists, there were international brigades that often went to Spain in order to fight mm-hmm. against the fascists. Uh, the Reds lost. Um, so 1944, the war is over. Uh, Franco has assumed control of the government. Um, and there is, uh, as the film shows us, this. I, I, I'm, as, I'm pretty sure this is actually pretty accurate. There was a retreat of um, socialists and anarchists and communists into the hills to kind of wage a kind of guerrilla war as partisans against uh, the fascists. So um, again, I think it's, I think it's important to kind of point out um, the the war is over, Mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 the left has lost and lost very violently. The, The Spanish civil war is an extraordinarily bloody piece of European history. Um, it, it involved, um, there was a lot of violence uh, on on both sides. Neither side covered themselves in glory, but I am not going to spend any time um, uh, even making an equivalence between uh, left-wing anarchists, socialists, and communists fighting for liberation and fascists fighting to exterminate them. Absolutely. Um, and uh, and so this is this is how this is how we receive Capitan Vidal, uh, Ophelia's new stepfather. Um, who is in command he's a he's a member of the military police so his 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 job is to kind of pacify the area and to get rid of the partisans mm-hmm. um does that does that work as a kind of like yeah no very, i think that's very basic historical primer i i, I think that's perfect and the, the only thing i would want to add to that is that like in a lot of these partisan groups that are still resisting the the fascist regime uh, especially at this point in 1944, there's still a lot of there. There are a lot of groups that are like, okay, now like uh, the the Allies just took care of Hitler. Now they're gonna now they're gonna swing south and deal with these other fascist regimes. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, which actually comes cavalry up. Cavalry never film, shows right? up. Which actually comes up in the film as you see a couple of partisans uh, reading the paper where they're they're yep. finding out about Allied movements. Um, and yeah. Capitan Vidal and his his squadron of of uh, fascist soldiers are there to uh, enforce Franco's rule, um, which is done through uh, control of resources. They they deliberately secure um, all of the rations for the surrounding area and the storehouse. It's done through propaganda because when they're giving out rations to people, they're telling them this is. You know, this is what life in Franco Spain is life. Like everybody in Spain is going to have, um, 
is going to have bread. Don't believe the lies that the communists tell you about people going hungry. And it's done through uh, torture and violence. Uh, and the violence often comes from the captain. Yes. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a phenomenal summary of what's of the, the, the kind of historic period that this movie is set in and, and what our characters are facing when they're not dealing with the, uh, the mystical world of the labyrinth. One, one quick question I had for you is, what do you think about the way that this film uses violence, given the fact that we are generally dealing with the violence of fascists towards an occupied populace and towards um, anti-fascist resistance? I think that's a really interesting question. And the first thing that jumps to mind is the kind of the, the contrasting violence of the two worlds, right? Because we have we have the world of the labyrinth, which is very violent. You know, you've got you've got the pale man who eats children and who eats fairies. Um, you've got the uh, the final ritual that Ophelia must complete to become a princess in the fantasy realm is to uh, sacrifice an infant or I guess specifically an innocent, but it can't get more innocent than an infant. Um, and so like there's, there's, there's that world of violence, right? And then that kind of overlays the violence of the Francoist fascist, right? And I think it really helps to just kind of like lay their depravity bare. You know, all of the violence that the fascists are doing are in order to hoard resources, in order to subjugate and oppress. In in like that is it, you know, like like the the violence just soaks through them, and they're all just like, like we we get this like absolutely jarring scene early on in the movie where two men are caught uh, near the fascist compound, and like uh, they're they're both just like, oh no, we were hunting rabbits. Uh, and then, and then our, our, you know, fascist antagonist beats one man to death with a beer bottle, and then shoots his father, and then shoots him, and it turns out that they were hunting rabbits, mm-hmm. and he killed those two guys as a bit of an object lesson for his soldiers to be more thorough in their work, and and so we're like we're looking at just like sheer unrelenting horrific depravity that is the necessary undergirding factor of fascism compared to fantasy violence i i i the thing that i think is super interesting about it is one thing del toro does a lot is make violence extremely sudden like violence just Mm -hmm. happens and it because we what we expect is we expect a kind of like the ratcheting up again it's going back to this kind of like cinematic language right you expect a ratcheting up of tension you expect the kind of threat of hero and villain then you might have the fight then you might have your climactic violence but in that scene there's a moment where you think oh maybe he's gonna let them go and then he just turns around and smashes this guy's skull with a beer bottle um and it's because i actually think this is directly tied up to what it's about which is the violence of fascism is not sudden but is mundane and it emerges actually even as you try and hold on to normality whatever that might mean the risk is everywhere and it's all around you and it isn't going to suddenly, there isn't going to suddenly be a showdown. The violence might just happen when a situation kind of just gives ever so slightly. And that's similar to the violence that is inflicted upon Capitan Vidal by Mercedes after, after she um, 
uh, very nearly after she after she jokerifies him. It's <laughs> what I was, uh, but. That that's what I think about his use of violence, right? It's it's this incredibly uh, it's this incredibly sudden thing, and it's like a snapping uh, of a situation. There is no build up, but like existence. You know, these people live not with the the threat that there might one day be the kind of villain who would appear. It's like you could get caught now, and you could mm-hmm. die right now in the most kind of painful and undignified way possible. Because that's the violence of fascism. It isn't. It isn't some great villain over there that's going to have a great climactic fight with the hero. It is kind of nasty and brutish, and it can happen like anywhere. And I think uh, this will this will lead us into a conversation on the end of this film. But the the violence is also systemic up until the point it's resisted. Right, like the uh, the fawn is trying to encourage Ophelia to sacrifice a child so she can claim her rightful position on the throne. Right, uh, that that would have happened if she did not resist it. Right, Mercedes could just coast a, a comparatively comfortable life um, as as kind of like the the lead housemaker on, in the fascist compound. But instead, she's resisting it all, uh, or risking it all, rather, to resist that systemic violence, to put an end to this system, even though that could spell her death. Mm-hmm. And I, I think yeah. that's 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 an important thing here is that like these these things are take these things are naturalized up until the point that they're not. Yes, uh, and anti-fascist violence establishes a new terrain of existence, right? Because mm-hmm. this is this is super important when it comes to. Vidal. So Vidal has this um, obsession with, as all fascists do, has this obsession with legacy. Yeah. With with what has been given to you, what are you going to hand on? Because it's a way of naturalizing fascism as a historical continuum. So uh, anti-fascist violence snaps it, right? It, it shatters it and it allows there for, to be space which is not fascist to emerge there it allows for a non-fascist history uh so towards the end of the film uh the partisans attack uh ophelia uh takes her her newborn baby brother to the labyrinth vidal chases after her uh vidal is confronted by the anti-fascists and starts to give this speech you know he starts to do the he starts to monologue we start to get the kind of expected you know crescendo where he says, you know, tell my son all of these things. Right. And Mercedes says, and Mercedes says, no, he's not he, even going to know your yeah, name. He, he won't even know your name. And then uh, one of the partisans shoots him in the face. And I think that is so incredibly compelling for me because Vidal has this hyper focus on his face throughout the movie. You know, uh, we get so many scenes of him where he's shaving right he he winds up getting that gash on his face we get the scene where he's stitching that back together it is all about this appearance that he's putting forward into the world is all about this aesthetic that ends that for him that that not only suffers his lineage but that destroys this object that he's been focusing on and i think that you you destroy the nat it the naturalized appearance of fascism Mm -hmm. you just that is that is how you deal with it you know you don't you don't uh it's like, you know, uh, it's, it's like, you know, you don't do the kind of liberal thing of like, 
oh, well, we made some mistakes in the past and now we're going to move. No, like you, you, you destroy it. You, you have to, otherwise it will return and, and grow more powerful. Yeah, what you don't do is you don't give Vidal a uh, high-ranking job in the West German government, British government, or American government. That's definitely a no-no here. <laughs> no, no, uh, that's it's almost like this film is trying to tell the viewer something about the correct response to the emergence of fascism uh, and the, the, the notable role that anti-fascist resistance necessarily has to play in combating it. Yeah, and it's like... Yes. <laughs> that that scene is just like... Uh, so, so we're getting on to talking about the ending now. And, and I think one of the most important things about the ending is that how Guillermo del Toro has been using color this whole time. Uh, the, the fairy tale world is full of these like shining golds and bright reds and these, these deep mahogany tones. And like, yeah, it's, it's got these pops of blue and green and... But it's got, it's got all of these like just just bursts of color right uh, uh the, the world of franco's spain is dull and muted nothing has color in that world everything is or i should say that the color itself is subjugated under under the weight of the fascism that's being depicted here until the end until the end when these bright bursts of orange are everywhere because the fascist compound is on fire you know there there's this merger between the world of the fantasy and and our reality right like we we see the ophelia and mercedes characters converge right as as they both kind of fulfill this like almost like a, a prophetic legacy right ophelia uh, ascends to the throne and returns to her homeland in this mystical realm uh mercedes uh you know like stands up right like dur during this moment right she completes resistance to fascism here and like I, I think that's really interesting that that is the point where we see these two worlds converge uh yes and shout out to uh Guillermo uh Salaras who's the director of photography won an Oscar um and deserves it because this film looks in in just incredible um and I completely agree with what you're saying about the character motivations as well. I feel like it's super important that we should flag up that the the the, the resistance to fascism is led by working class people, by the poor, and by women. You know, Mercedes actually says to the captain the reason that she did, that the captain didn't notice is because he thinks that all women are invisible. You mm -hmm. know, it's almost um, like there's a historical lesson there that we should really take to heart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, who would think? Again, uh, I don't want to tie this back to the point I was trying to make about didacticism, about about culture being able to teach us important things that we should, you know, pay be aware of. Um, but no, it, I, th I think you've yeah, it's, it's almost like this is a fairy about. tale, and fairy tales uh, tend to have a moral lesson at their core. <laughs> um, I think you're completely correct about the the photography and the cinematography. Um, the contrast. Uh, it's a, it's a world anyone would want to escape from, right? You know, the compound with all of its sort of washed out grays and browns and dark blues and this very subdued, depressed. Like the, the moment I was thinking of when you were talking about that is when she, um, when Ophelia draws on draws the door to get to the, the realm of the mm -hmm. pale man and you go from this cold, bleak blue palette into something that's so lush uh, and warm 
Uh, it's also terrifying because the pale man is is genuinely uh, is designed to give you nightmares. Um, uh, it's, it's absolutely wild that Guillermo del Toro based the pale man on Mitch McConnell. Like this is just so frightening. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that that is is again another way of showing that this film. Some criticism of it said that the film didn't cohere into a unity, but it's like even on the level of of cinematography, on the level of color, on the level of editing, everything in this is operating together. And and yeah, that that is that is a child's interpretation of unity within a film. Mm-hmm. You, you you know like. Things don't have to be uh, ground into a homogenous slop that that is that is uh, ladled into your gaping maw. You know, like like there can be a, a veritable cacophony inside of a film, and that film could still be totally unified in what it's attempting to do. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I I also want to talk talk very briefly about the labyrinth and what labyrinth is labyrinthies labyrinths are for i have no um, labyrinth i i have no idea <laughs> so it's it's very important that it's not a maze it's a labyrinth i think i think that's an important distinction to make because if we think about this in the context of fascism right if we think about this in the context of it's what we might say the the um adult history that's being told simultaneously with this kind of child's perspective fairy story labyrinths are designed as uh places of of change you go into the labyrinth you come out as something different that's what they're for and if this is about the movement from one state of existence to another that's fine but it's also about the movement of a uh, away from fascism towards resistance to fascism and anti-fascism. Um, and I think not only does that make a very important point about Ophelia's uh, progression as a fairy tale protagonist, but it makes a much more uh, broader point about the role of anti-fascist resistance uh, and national identity, right? How do you move from being a country that was under a fascist dictatorship to being something else? There is there is a there is a kind of great greater labyrinth than the one that we see here. What do you think? I I, I think that's completely correct. You know, like like the, the labyrinth. This goes back to the the, the question I posed in the precy, right? Like the labyrinth is a journey. The the labyrinth is a change. You know, and the labyrinth is as internal as it is an external space. And each mm. character in this movie has a labyrinth that they're in or they are the monster within someone else's labyrinth mm-hmm. you know like uh the, the there's a lot of striking parallels between mercedes having to be this kind of uh a spy for the anti-fascist resistance and live under the direct watch of the the commander of this fascist compound and Ophelia having to uh, sneak through the pale man's lair as part of her quest to become this mythical princess, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, should we talk about the ending then? I think, I yes. think, given given everything, we we have to talk about the ending, which probably absolutely. generated generated the most kind of. Uh, I don't know, discourse. Con- yeah, c- controversy. 
So um, Ophelia takes her newborn baby brother to the labyrinth with the fawn. She's chased by Vidal. Uh, Vidal finds her finding talking to the fawn, telling the fawn that she, she isn't going to harm the child. Uh, Vidal can't see it. Um, and then she takes the baby from Ophelia and shoots her. Mm-hmm. Um, Mercedes finds Ophelia and um, her blood falls down into the center of the labyrinth and then she appears in a golden throne room. She's she's fine. She's uninjured. Um, back in this stone labyrinth, Ophelia is held in Mercedes' arms and smiles and that's that's where we end. So what do you think about the ending and why do you think it generated so much so much discourse? Uh well one, uh this this movie had the strength of character to kill a child, which is <laughs> something that <Yep. laughs> most movies shy away from. That's an incredibly difficult thing to do on screen. And it takes a lot of expertise to do it in a way that is not just crass. You know, so that I think right off the bat is is a huge testimony to the strength of this movie that it can do that. And it's mm. not just for shock value. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> what, I, what I would also say is so something that I want to talk about regarding the ending. And I think the thing for me that is incredibly important about the ending is that our so our, our se- sequence of events, right? Vidal is chasing Ophelia, who's got the infant. Uh, Vidal shoots Ophelia, reclaims the infant. Uh, Vidal is then uh, uh, absolutely wrecked by the uh, local partisans. Uh, Mercedes then finds the dying Ophelia, and then we get that scene where where Ophelia is in the in the the fantasy land, becoming a princess, being greeted by her true family. Um, and then we go back to the surface world where we see Ophelia finally die. But as, as the camera pulls up in a way, so, uh, in, in the final, uh, kind of sequence that we're getting here is that like the, the camera pulls up and, and the, uh, kind of like, um, maze pattern of the labyrinth where Ophelia dies has now descended into a stairwell. Right, and it's the stairwell that we see at the beginning of the movie that Ophelia runs up when she uh, runs away from home from the fantasy world and into the world of humanity. And I think like there's a really interesting question posed by the sequence of events here at the end, right? And that's is what Ophelia is experiencing real? And I, I mean real in the legitimate sense, real like the apple sitting on my kitchen counter is real. What do you think? I sort of think I sort of think it's there are a couple of things I really like about the ending. Um, one, uh, it manages to be shocking even though you know what the ending is from the very beginning of the film, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because it's almost how the film uh, begins. Um, two, uh, I think the idea of movement between worlds necessitating death, or rather a kind of death. Um, is pretty is pretty sort of standard for a lot of um, fantasy narratives, and doesn't doesn't necessarily break the kind of structural unity of the film as a whole. Um, and and secondly, I think, thirdly rather, I think th- this kind of temptation to go, oh, was it real or wasn't it, goes precisely back to that kind of Aristotelian storytelling 
that Del Toro was trying to critique in the first place. That's that's really interesting, and I think this might be our, our like uh, first point of divergen divergence here. Uh, Fifty three minutes into this episode, um, but I think the ending is completely real. You know, and I I think that that is part of what is being communicated to us here, right? Because the 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 final shot is letting us know that like uh, Ophelia's kind of mystical impact in the realm of humanity is still felt for those who can see it. And and we see yeah. the uh, this the stick bug that uh, transformed into a fairy earlier on in the film, kind of uh, uh, standing behind this this flower as it unnaturally blooms before us, right? And mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's letting us know that oh, the, you can see these fantasy things if you're in tune with them, right? <clears throat> and what we see throughout the movie is that like Vidal cannot see this stuff. He he is completely severed any connection to this that he could possibly have. Uh, Mercedes, on the other hand, while she can't interact with and see this world, like she's willing to entertain Ophelia's belief in it. And I think we're getting like these, these, these gradations of proximity to the fawn and the labyrinth and, and that way of seeing the world and this mysticism. And I think it's, it's, it's really important to not, uh, fall into kind of um because we're, we're we're being baited here at the end right because it's it's a very classic like like oh ophelia is dying um every all this fantasy stuff that's just that's just her her dying brain firing off uh, the, a last bolt of frantic chemical action and she's of course a little child who's enamored with this story so that's that's her final dream as she dies um but objectively as the camera pulls out and it's no longer in Ophelia's POV, as it's an objective overhead shot, we see that the labyrinth has collapsed into the mystic stairwell. We, we get 100% irrefutable concrete proof that everything Ophelia experienced was not the dream of a child. It was a part of reality to which most people cannot have access. And I think that that shifts a lot of the discourse and the weight in this movie because it, it challenges the irony of, of contemporary sim- cinematic viewership, right? Like, I, I, again, I was watching this. I was thinking about the, the Marvel movies where, like, a, for the most part, up until maybe very recently, whenever magic comes up in the MCU, it's always like, oh, no, it's just, it's just science, uh, super cool science, or it's just some kind of math you don't get yet. And it's like, it's like, no, Guillermo del Toro's world, there's actually magic, right? And I think that that is, is deeply challenging to a lot of our, our ways of looking at the world. Um, I, 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 hate to, I hate to disagree with you, but... Um, oh, do it, do it, do I, it. But I agree completely. So there, ah. is no, there, is, there is no point of disagreement <laughs> here, not even 53 minutes in. Um, I completely agree. Um, this is why I think the, the question of like, taxonomic reality is unhelpful because mm-hmm. the point is the whole point of the film is its integrated unity um and i i actually think the most important point you've you, you made there is is the point about vidal right vidal can't even see the world in the same way because it's a world that has been stripped of uh the supernatural of of enchantment of the strange the 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 numinous the magical whatever t- whatever terminology is most useful. Um, and it ties directly back into a kind of long-standing theme of 
del Toro's, which is this uh, anti-fascist supernaturalism. You know, fascism mm-hmm. is what it is because it reduces the world to utility and instrumentality. Right, people, people, and and things are useful in what they can do and in how they can be used, whereas uh, the world of uh, the Fawn and the world of the Labyrinth is it do, use does not necessarily apply, right? That it's it's abundant and strange and mysterious in ways that fascism and Vidal can can't can't even look at or can't even recognize when it's right in front of them. Um, so no, I I'm totally with you. I don't think the ending is ambiguous at all. I, I think um, I think your your point here is really good because like not only can Vidal not see Ophelia's world, he can't see his own, right? Mm-hmm. He he can't see the fact that Mercedes is orchestrating his death every step of this film, for the exact reasons Mercedes winds up laying out to him later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the Kierkegaard, there's a Kierkegaard quote. Um, from Kierkegaard's journals, which is really uh, interesting, uh, where he's talking about martyrdom. And Kierkegaard says, the tyrant dies and his rule is over. The martyr dies and his rule begins. And it's like, yep, well, there you go. That's that's the ending of Pan's Labyrinth for you. Mm-hmm. You have the death of the death of Adal, although we know that fascism is not uh, so neatly uh, kind of decapitated. Um, but Vidal's Vidal's tyranny ends very brutally with his death, uh, and you go well. And so, so from my point of view, it's like even if Ophelia dies in this world, it doesn't matter because that's just the beginning. And as you say, the voiceover explicitly says uh, her her kind of trace presence is visible to those who know how to look at the world and both horror and fantasy are fundamentally designed to help you reorientate yourself and your relationship to the world. Horror and fantasy will help you see things differently if you allow them to. I think as, as my parting statement about this movie, I I would just want to flag up another uh, parallel between Ophelia and Mercedes, right? And, and it goes right back to your Kierkegaard quote. Uh, in, in so many ways, Ophelia is a martyr. You know, Mercedes lives through the end of the film, but there, there is another innocent that is martyred, and that's her lover. And I think his name is Paolo, if I'm remembering mm-hmm, yeah. correctly. Um, but but he's, he's one of the uh, uh, predominant figures of, of the local anti-fascist resistance group. And he winds up being captured by Vidal and, and executed. And like what what we kind of get out of that is is this this kind of parallel sacrificing of the innocent this parallel martyrdom right paulo dies right there but like he he will live on forever in those actions and you know that that final quote applies as much to mercedes as it does ophelia you know like like if if you know how to properly appraise uh history <laughs> you'll you'll see the actions of mercedes's throughout time these people who yeah. tried to make the world better and who tried to resist thing even, even as we get like a disnified history that's attempting to erase that no completely completely i i i think it's an incredibly important thing to realize that there is a historical continuity that we can draw from Absolutely.
So do you have uh, do you have any parting thoughts? I I one one final thing I wanted to bring up is um, this idea of fairy stories generally as being slightly regressive or childish. Um, maybe one of the best Marxist critics of the twentieth century, Ernst Bloch, wrote extensively about the fact that. Uh, like Bloch, Bloch's vision was kind of capacious and he argued that pretty much all culture has within it a kind of utopian impulse. Everything that we've ever made is in some way a reflection of a desire for a better world. So fairy stories are not just kind of like childish narratives that are designed to kind of, you know, placate and pacify children, but they are an expression of a uh, a world that is kind of stranger and grander and more interesting than the, the, the world of kind of rational adulthood. Um, and I think this is a film that really does express the utopian impulse. You know, it, it isn't about becoming a princess so you can be a princess, but it's about becoming something greater than the, than the way in which you're limited by the authoritarian demands of fascism. It's about escaping the repressive violence of uh, political struggle for a time of justice and peace. Uh, and it's framed in, in, in kind of, the point of view of a child because children experience that just as acutely if not more so as as, as anyone else uh it is a a beautiful testament to uh, a kind of artistic unity that put, that embodies this idea of anti-fascist supernaturalism um and I'm, I'm so glad we got to talk about it what about you any any final thoughts i i think that's a beautiful way to to end this episode I wanted to thank everyone for tuning in to our episode on El Labyrintho del Fauno. And if you do get the time, please check out uh, John's survey, the video, uh, the little cinematic masterpiece uh, that he was able to put together with some phenomenally talented filmmakers. I, I think that this research is going to be fantastic and we all get a chance to participate in it, which is even more fun. Thanks for tuning in, creeps, and remember, stay spooky. <laughs>